Welcome to the Sword and Trial. Sword and Trial is a podcast of Founders Ministries, and Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. I'm Tom Askell. And I'm Graham Gundon. We're glad to have you join us again this week for this episode of The Sword and Trial. And we want to remind you that next week, the 2023 National Founders Conference will begin and be held here in Southwest Florida. And it's sold out, so we're not going to be able to find uh, access to come here physically. But it is going to be live streamed, available for free. Uh, you can get on the Founders website. Information will be made available about that for ways that you can sign up to access all of the sessions that will be not only live streamed, but recorded and then released uh, after they have gone through some production quality uh, tweaks in the weeks ahead. But we're delighted today to have with us Russ Vogt. Uh, Russ is a, a friend that I got to meet last summer and or maybe spring and, and just followed his work a little bit. But uh, he and Mary have worked in Washington, D.C. for many years. He's been very involved at different levels of uh, political life in our nation, and we're delighted to have him with us. So, Russ, welcome. We're glad to have you on the Sword and Trial. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah, Russ, you formed a couple of years ago this Center for American Renewal. So can you uh, tell us what the Center for Renewing America is all about and, and why you formed that? Yeah, when I left the administration, I was President Trump's budget director. There there was a lot of kind of 50-year problems that I thought needed addressing on the right and those who are coming from a Christian perspective. Big paradigms that I think that conservatives and, and conservative elite had missed, and as a result, we have failed. And often these are the things that separate them, these elites from those who are their voters, those in, in the Christian pews. Uh, and one of those correctives is that we're a nation under God. Mm. So we talk about being a, a, a nation that's for God. That's a consensus that we want to renew in this country, that we have religious liberty, but it cannot come from this notion that a, a country isn't understanding the reality that it has to obey God, and there is only one true God, and that is uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that is a, a big part of what we do is reestablishing that notion in our public policy and to be able to argue on the basis of public policy those certain truths. And that truth is, comes from revelation. And that doesn't mean that everyone agrees with it, but, but can we at least have Christians in the public policy realm that argue from their perspective that they hold as opposed to kind of this, this, uh, this Christian secularism mm -hmm. that goes in and says, you know what, uh, I'm going to leave all of that at at my church or at my home, and then I'm going to try to figure out what is this public policy that's that it, that emanates from somewhere not that not from Revelation, not from a Christian Western civilization uh, tradition that we've had for hundreds of years. Our whole common law is based on a Judeo-Christian worldview. So that's one part. The other big corrective is that we're a country. So we're for God, we're for country, we have interests, we have borders, we make decisions on basis, on the basis of what's good for this country and what's good for the people in it. Um, and then that we are a, for community is, is important. So uh, we love individual rights, individual rights flow from a creator, but individual rights have to be understood within healthy laws and just societies. And to that extent, we've been a little too libertarian on the right and not understanding that 
Um, you know, communities are really important. What is being taught in schools is important. Uh, drugs have an enormous a negative effect on communities. So if you, if I could put it in the negative, Tom, uh, we believe that on the right over the last 50, 60 years, post-World War II, we've been too secular, we've been too imperialistic, and we've been too individualistic. And one of those correctives is, is what we're dealing with on any given basis, whether that is policy, process, which we're dealing with here in Congress this week, or politics, uh, which is we have a, a separate political organization for. So we're trying to, to change that worldview. It may take us 50, 60 years, uh, but we believe there needs to be an organization that gets uh, these correctives right so that there can be a healthy conservative movement on the right that battles the left. And what is that continental divide between the right and the left in the political sphere? It, it is what Whitaker Chambers said. It is man is the measure of all things. Left believes that man is the measure of all things. The right believes or should believe that God is the measure of all things. And we've lost the ability to even say that and have people understand what we mean. Wow. And that's great. You're, you're playing all the notes I love to hear. Um, Those are, those are some things that I've uh, come to the realization of over the past four to five years. I'm sure that you're much further ahead of it than, than I have been. Um, but it's just so grateful that the center for renewing America is there doing that work. Cause so many of us that are starting to see these things clearly just feel so powerless to do anything about it. Um, and we can speak to it, but I'm grateful that you're there uh, in the Capitol able to actually work for that. Yeah. Amen. And, and Russ, I'm very intrigued too. And I think our, our, our listeners would be interested in knowing how did you get to this? I mean, what were you, did you come to Christ early? Were you raised in a Christian home? What's, uh, what's the trajectory that you've been on that's brought you to the place where you are today? Sure. Um, uh, my mom led me to the Lord when I was four years old hmm. and was in a very really strong, uh, Bible preaching, uh, Bible teaching church. Um, we went, uh, they, they put me in, in Christian camps, uh, through with every one of my summers and had great discipleship through, uh, those experiences, both as a camper and as a staffer, uh, went to Wheaton college, uh, was there for four years and, uh, got a, a lot of, uh, good meat put inside me. But honestly, Tom, you know, and I think this will be music to your, your ears. I've had good churches, mm. uh, particularly once I started coming into college, uh, College Church, Kent Hughes, mm-hmm. uh, Capitol Baptist, Mark Dever, uh, and, and now Cherry Dell Baptist, which, which Mary and I have been at for the last 12, 11, 12 years, uh, which has been uh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's really uh, how we've ordered our life. And uh, all, of, all the while, you know, ever since college, I've been, you know, pouring into uh, political theory, uh, policy, and stuff's been rattling around in my cage through the various experience on the House, the Senate, uh, and and grassroots. Uh, I did you know six years, seven years of building a grassroots network before I went into the administration. And then being able to serve as President Trump's budget director um, was an in- incredible opportunity for me to to, to kind of convert from being a staffer to someone that's in the arena directly to be able to kind of get your hand, your mind wrapped around how uh, the different things that come at you and to be able to uh, articulate and show other people um, how you can go forward and lead on these issues in a way that 
uh, is understanding of of what they are dealing with. And so that's one of the things we try to do at the Center for Renewing America. If the boring budget guy can go in and talk about the risky subject of critical race theory, I guarantee you that every one of the Republican members that just got elected to. So we are going to do everything we can to arm you, to build you up, but we are going to push you onto oncoming traffic. We will try to clear the lane for you, but we're going to push you into oncoming traffic because that's what's necessary to save the country. You mentioned uh, critical race theory. I think that's the first time I actually saw your name was right at the end of the Trump administration. You authored that executive order that I thought was just tremendous uh, calling for the removal of critical race theory from all of our federal agencies and entities, I guess, uh, something like that. I forget the, the name of it now, but uh, I saw that and I thought, this is incredible. I did mm. not know who you were at the time, but I read it and my heart leapt within me. So yeah, you, you have been doing this a long time. And even before you got into uh, the presidential administration, I, I read somewhere in your um, biography that you worked for Phil Graham. Uh, is that right? When he was a senator? I- yeah. My first four years in, in Washington, D.C. was working for Phil Graham, and it was a seminal experience uh, because I was 24, 25. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was at the top of his game mm-hmm. uh unilaterally taking procedural action. And so many of the things that I got to see as an aide to camp for him for four years uh, doing legitimate policy work on the floor of the Senate uh, has shaped how I think about Congress Mm. uh, and all of the reading that a kid does when they're 24, 25 (laughs) prepares them for what they're going to do in their 30s and their 40s. Yeah, Phil taught at our at uh, Texas A&M University, uh, economics. And I went there, and he was a professor there while I was there. I never had him, but I learned from him just uh, kind of following him around and reading his stuff. And uh, when I saw the connection there, I thought, man, this is great. You know, no, no wonder you're, you're so good, and Phil Graham maybe has had some influence on you. So glad to hear that. Well, tell us about what happened last week in the House of Representatives. I mean, what was it 15 votes before uh, McCarthy became the speaker? Is that Am I right on that? I mean, I went to bed, so (laughs) I'm sure you were up maybe for that. But can you explain that to us? I mean, it was a topic of conversation in my household and the church and other places, but uh, there's just a lot of gaps in our Mm -hmm. understanding of what happened, why it needed to happen, according to you and others, and uh, some of the benefits that have come from that. So can you give us that uh, background? Absolutely. You know, one of my concerns about Washington, D.C. And the, and the way that the House and the Senate have, have grown incrementally to function, and I believe that we are shaped by the institutions that we have, uh, that we are a part of, and oftentimes we don't know the way that they shape our institutions. But right now we have this problem in the country where the, that Congress has almost merged with the administrative state mm-hmm. and K Street, uh, not formally, but just the way it behaves where power rests. So if you got elected tomorrow and and took your place, you would not have that much power as a rank and file member. The only people in Congress that have power are leadership and the committee chairman. Uh, Similarly, uh, in the what Congress does is they just send all the bills to the the executive branch, but they don't really parse out what specifically they want to occur and they let the agencies do all this behind closed doors. So the president of the United States can get elected, and yes, he's in charge of the executive branch, but we've gotten to the point where unless they have very clear uh, procedures and policies that they want to enact, 
it is most of the time the case that the president of the United States does not lead the executive branch anymore just because of the way this is, is, is morphed. Mm. So fast forward to the House. Just, just take this one issue of the House of Representatives and how they organize. The House of Representatives needs to pass a speaker. And so once it became clear in November that Kevin McCarthy had a very, very slim majority, and we knew that we had 20 to 40 hardcore conservative members, we knew that there was an opportunity to change the way the cartel works and make it so that decisions are actually made on the House floor and debates are had on the House floor, that its power is decentralized, leadership is not powerful, as powerful, they'll still be powerful. And so we were saying, we want a paradigm shift. We want to go back to the way the founders intended the House of Representatives to work. And we either want a paradigm shifting speaker who gets it themselves, or we want a paradigm shift in, in terms of what they agree to. And we finally got to the point where this, where Kevin McCarthy agreed to a paradigm shifting result. And I, I look at what was, was secured and it'll, some of it will get in the weeds, but this is the first time in, in 60 years when Sp Sam Rayburn was speaker and came into the first year of John Kennedy's administration and said, I'm going to claim some of this power away from the members on behalf of John Kennedy we're, this is 60 years in the making, and that's just the procedural aspects. There was commitments to balance the budget. There was a commitment to, to have specific plans to deal with the, the border. Uh, there was a, a, a committee created, and we could talk a little bit more in depth about this. It's a church committee, but that's not a church committee in the way that you understand it. It is, it is a Praise historical <laughs> reference point. It is a historical <laughs> reference point to the 1970s church committee led by Senator Frank Church that went after the FBI and CIA. Mm. Mission critical for being able to get at the fact that we have a government that's not just woke, but weaponized against the American mm. people. So this was, an, this was a transformational agreement, and it wouldn't have happened unless the 20 members had stood tall and said, I'm not gonna go away, I'm not going for business as usual. I'm going to stand in the gap. I'm going to get something that's transformational because the hour is late in this country. And if we don't take dramatic action, that really only lasted a week. Everyone wants to say, oh my gosh, this led to chaos. It lasted a week, guys. And you know what, <laughs> the house was packed. The members were there, there were debates. It actually looked like the House of Commons. I mean, it was working in a way that the founders intended it to, and it was it was a spectacular success. Mm. Yeah, that I thought, hey, this is what democracy looks like, you know, as the, the times I tuned in on it. And now, um, what was your role in that? I mean, you had an agenda, and, and you put it out through your Center for Renewing America. You know, this is what needs to happen. And how much of what you guys wanted to see happen back in September actually was accomplished. Yeah, we were we were blessed to be able to be a resource to the members who were in the arena and to arm them with what we thought the, the vision could be. They had their own views on that. Uh, but we came away with three of our top priorities that we would have been working on for the entirety of last year. Mm -hmm. The church committee was something that we put out on as, a, as a, a, something that was necessary. Uh, the balanced budget, I rolled out a, a budget for the Center for Renewing America, really intending to model what our year five budget would be for President Trump and to say, okay, we're gonna do kind of a shadow budget. Uh, all the terms for that were agreed to. Um, and then uh, really importantly, but we don't talk about it often, but just 
the rules committee being stocked. The rules committee is like a procedural committee within the house that makes all of the procedural determinations for every bill, major bill and amendment that comes to the floor. The longest serving person in Congress, John Dingell said, if I give you policy and you give me procedure, I'll beat you every time. And we have uh, this agreement ensures that this is going to be stocked with conservatives. And that's the kind of thing that allows me to characterize this as both transformational and enduring because it becomes the baseline for all future victories. You know, Russ, uh, it strikes me that um, we're kind of jaded toward politicians today because we see so many of them make promises they do not keep. So what uh, guarantees or hopes do you have that uh, Speaker McCarthy will indeed do what he has agreed to do? Part of this agreement that is enduring is the fact that the Rules Committee actually has de jure authority and power. And so that the members, this this envisions the members themselves enforcing their own agreement. That's what's different than committee. Like when I was in the House, and there'd be, you know, speaker would make a commitment on paper. We would just laugh at that, right? Because that was like loosing the football. And we knew that was never going to happen. And we were kind of irritated that it was ever agreed to because it was just ludicrous. What's different about this is you have the rise of what I call coalition government, that within the Republican Party, you have now this 20 that it's not unlike the Christian Democrats have to go and get another party in Germany or Likud in Israel. That's what this looks like. The 20 is now exercising real power and they make determinations for themselves in coalition with the larger Republican bloc. That's why this is enduring. And they have the ability to put the house right back in the situation last week if the terms of the agreement are not executed. But here's where the, the critical aspect that needs to occur, and I am, I am. This will be where I'm thinking about the members themselves who just did this have to know. They have to understand the new world that they live in, mm. and so it's really easy to go back to your old ways and saying, "Well, you know, well, we just vote for this." And no, no, no. You you just had a historic victory. You are now in coalitional part, coalitional government, now you have to act like it. Now you have to take it to the implications of what it is. And that's going to be a lot of work and, 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 and trying to educate and articulate what that looks like in this new world that we live in. Yeah, one of those 20 was uh, Byron Donalds, who's my congressman, and uh, I've just grown to love him the more uh, I've gotten to speak to him, know him a little bit, and then watched him uh, operate. So I'm, I'm delighted to hear you explaining this, knowing that, that the congressman that represents us here was one of those mm. that just drew the line in the sand, so I'm not going to move beyond this. So uh, that's great. I'm grateful for that. You know, I got a... Um the, the way that I, I envision it, and I invite you to maybe help me correct my thinking in this, you know, it seems as though we got we got the left, which is manifested in Democrats in, in Washington, and we got the right, which is manifested in Republicans, and Republicans and conservatives have been trying to stop the progressive march of the left for decades, and part of the reason the, the Democrats have been so successful is because they've been able to be so unified on their vote. So it seems as though they, they vote in block. And one of our challenges for true conservatives is, is it seems as though the Republicans, which are supposed to be the conservative party, are not, to be. are not being conservative yeah. and they're not really conserving anything. And the way to solve this problem seems to be what you're talking about here is having these coalitions to be able to kind of push and to move the Republican party further right. But one weakness that it seems to me that it introduces is that now the Republican party is not 
as unified as perhaps the Democrat Party is. And so you'll have certain Republicans voting for for things and the you know the House Speaker can't get the, the party together to to vote for the things that he thinks that needs to happen for a win. Um, so does this fracture the party in any way? I understand that it helps to push the party to the right, and that's exactly what I want. But does it fracture the party in any way that weakens it so that it can't have the political victories that it needs to have? I don't think so. I think what it does do is it, it, it brings out from behind closed doors the disagreements and the debate and, and where you find unity and have that out in front of the American people so that the American people doesn't put someone – uh, in office thinking that they are one of these hardcore members and they're not. Um, and I think I'd love to be in a situation where we had one party that was, uh, that had absorbed all the correctives that I talked about earlier and would go do battle with the left, but we don't have that. And, and that's a real challenge. I mean, we, most of these Republicans never want to fight on cultural issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, all they ever want to talk about is a tax cut or a regulatory cut or some free trade deal. Mm-hmm. They never want to fight on the stuff where the left seizes relentlessly on. And as a result, we're 50, 60 years in here. And so, uh, and on the, on the, on the precipice of, of, of some serious danger to our country. And we've seen that from the weaponization of our government. So, um, I think you've got to have more out in the plain day about where people stand. And then from that, if there's unity for the house to move, you can go do battle with the, with the Democrats. And, and to the extent that there are those who were not a part of the 20 and there's you know great conservative members that were not part of the 20, I wish they were, I was pushing them to be, but there should be an incentive now to bring that other 200 with them so that it's more and more aligned with where the action is, where, where there are fighters and where they're making reasonable arguments. I mean, what we want to say, what our, our center exists to do with the credibility that we have from former serving government, uh, Ken Cuccinelli, former attorney general of Virginia, former deputy secretary of department of Homeland security. We're trying to say there, you can credibly make arguments and govern along the lines of actually what's necessary to save the country, not policies that were made up in the 80s or 90s, but that have the magnitude of the moment that we are in, and they won't be viewed as uncredible. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to take that and give that to the members and say, there is no reason why you can't win this debate on the floor of the House and the Senate. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. A lot of times I saw members were scared and then I could actually get them to a more of a better place than I thought I could as budget director just by going and meet with them. And I think that's the, we need more of that, but it's, we can't, we've got to draw those lines in the sand to make sure that in that process, we're not receding to not having the fight that's necessary for the country. That's good. And, and, you know, one of those policies, one of the things you mentioned is going to take place now is this church committee. And I'm intrigued by that. Um, the Steele dossier was an eye-opener to me once I began to get my mind around it. I'm not sure I finally did, but I, just to see this thing was completely made up. I mean, this was smoke and mirrors uh, at great expense to the American uh, Republic. And, and then in God's providence, this is a w- weird thing. I still don't understand how all of it happened. But I wound up uh, sitting at a dinner table one night with Roger Stone, and uh, he started telling me about the raid on his house. And uh, on another occasion, I, I met Jerome Corsi. He told me the same kind of story. And what was done to these guys? I mean, uh, Jerome Corsi said that the FBI, or I think it was the FBI, gave him a document, said, all you got to do is sign it. 
and say that Trump was uh, involved in Russian collusion, and we will release you. So, but if you don't, we'll ruin you. We'll ruin your children. Said so you may win, but you'll die before you win. And I mean, I, I'm listening to this, and he, his wife is there with him, and she's weeping. She said she got up one morning. He was at his desk. He couldn't sleep. And she said, you know what? She said, I've decided I would rather you spend the rest of your life in jail rather than sign this and violate your integrity. And he said that was a turning point for him when he just went public and said, I'm not going to do it. And, and Roger Stone talking about CNN showing up 15 minutes before the raid on his house. They had lights out there. And I, I'm thinking, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. I, I used to so venerate the... FBI and CIA and thank God, you know, for those brave men and women. But man, what, what would you like to see done with the church committee? Well, we know we have a massive problem and that's crystal clear. Uh, we have them weaponizing against the American people. And our own story is uh, we have on our team, Jeff Clark, and they raided his house for literally doing nothing except investigating voter fraud for president Trump. Mm. They wouldn't let him mm. put a pair of jeans on. They took him out, humiliated him, trying to call the, the, the police. And this is how they rumble. Yeah. And they've got these SWAT teams all over the place. The NSA surveils the American people. What, what's necessary, though, is the how. how. How does the administrative security state do this? What are the processes that they use? So we, we've, they use their classification system. They use the background checks. They deny background checks to some and, and give to others. There's a whole set of things that are, I would say, in my mind, theses, Tom, mm. that we have to prove with a massive 150 staff committee doesn't have to worry about anything except the task ahead to be able to fully expose the extent of the problem and then figure out what's necessary on day one of a new administration or whatever you could do during the appropriations process to starve them of of the funds in in the next two years. That's where I think it is incredibly important. And I would just say it's, it's slightly off of your question, but this is this is a, a podcast that's oriented towards Christians. Christians are going to suffer. I mean, we are we are in the moment where folks have to be understanding that the standing up for their their faith, for their country, for their family is going to put them in the crosshairs of the federal government. Now, if we are successful, organizations like mine are gonna take the brunt of that, that politicians take the brunt, that's why they're running, because they wanna save the country and they wanna interpose between them and, and and, and the voters. But ordinary faithful people need to start taking stock of the country that we are in and understand what time it is and being able to take risk uh, that and that's why I'm so encouraged for me to see people go to the microphones on critical race theory, knowing that they're going to lose their job and to do it anyway is what certifies the truth of what they are standing for to a watching world. And it makes it so that the, the most harmful aspects of what we're seeing is we've seen political prisoning right now in this country mm-hmm. where people who should have been released, they might, they might have broken laws, but they should have been released because they are not a flight risk or a danger to the community and to society. So why are they in jail for over a year? They're in jail for no other reason than because they are disfavored politically. Those are the kinds of things that we're seeing in this country for the very first time. And the storm clouds are upon us and we've got to take measure and be ready to put ourselves in uncomfortable, difficult spots and, and, and trust that duty is ours, results are God's. Mm. 
You know, that, that's well said, and it leads into this last thing I want to talk to you about is, uh, you know, Christians caring about this. Um, we've been accused, Graham and I and Sword and Trial Founders Ministries, even the last few years of, of suddenly becoming just political. And you know, now we're uh, political hacks or we're being run by political operatives or something. What would you say to Christian pastors, to conservative Bible-believing pastors about the need to get involved and to take the kind of stands you just articulated. And uh, when they think, well, no, I've got a Bible and I just need to exegete the Bible and teach my people to love Jesus and love people and try to win people to Jesus. Um, that's my uh, full agenda. And I don't need to even be thinking about these other things. What, what kind of, um, what would you like to say to them? How would you like to persuade those who, who have those thoughts and their right thoughts and good thoughts as far as they go, they're just not fulsome enough. They're, they're not thinking as broadly as they ought to think. So speak to pastors like me. Yeah, a couple of thoughts. Number one, I would, I would ask them to put themselves in some of the situations that they know from history where great evident public evil was on the rise, put themselves in, in uh, the beginnings of, of the third Reich and to think through the extent to which they, they would, as pastors, they would have seen the rise of anti-Semitism. That was a public issue. That was, was impacting the laws. They would have seen the rise of a political party that was, was evil. And so we are seeing a political party on the rise that is increasingly evil. You cannot be a leader of the political that's not, I'm not saying every Democrat is evil. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that the, the Democrat party that we now have is woke and weaponized. It is, it is intent on, on preserving a particular secular worldview and to putting that coercively in every family and community in the country. And we see that from what they're doing on the LGBT agenda. We see that, we've seen that for 50 years with, with their view on life. And so that's what we're up against increasingly. And now you add, add the aspects of tyranny coming from the interaction between the agencies and these corporate monoliths that are of the same view. That's, that's actually fascism. And so th this is not just, you know, this is a, a categorical difference than kind of the moral majority fights in the 1980s between Democrats and leftists. This is just totally different. Was the worldview same? Yes. Was the worldview lead to this worldview? Yes. But categorically, what their congregation is experiencing or will experiencing soon is very, very different. And so you have to have a categorical understanding of what has changed. Let me just give you one example, the media. The media was liberal under Walter Cronkite. We know that. The media is now state media. It's, it's, it's like what you would see in China. People don't expect you to have reports about the way that Christians' religious liberties have been violated in China. Of course not, because it's state media. But we still have Christians who read the newspapers and mainstream and think, oh, man, there's no evidence of voter fraud. Of course there's no evidence of voter fraud. Because it's the, it's a state media. So that is just one aspect of how we have to fundamentally get new categories. Does that change the questions about what a, a pastor does in the pulpit? No, not necessarily. Does that does that change your discipleship? It might it might include an aspect of, of, of Christian worldview to be able to think through, okay, this is how our Christian faith would impact the political worldview that we hold. It might do that. 
But it certainly should not mean that pastors should not be helping their congregation think through these issues and then provide a model about how to talk and think publicly because they're, they're, it's just, they, they, they lack that. And as a result, they're left fending for themselves in the political arena or their, their corporate arena in ways that they lack, they lack no models to be able to do so. So I commend you all for being a part of that and kind of this corrective of the young, restless, and reformed years. Yeah, we've thought a lot about that, and uh, we don't pretend to have it all figured out. But there, there are two broad categories in my mind that force me into this arena. And one is the Lordship of Christ and the reality that when you say Jesus is Lord, you said the most political thing you could possibly say uh, in from the Scriptures into our world today. You know, the state's not Lord, the, the, Jesus is Lord, and so because of that, we obey him, and the state must obey him as well, whether or not they acknowledge him. What you said earlier, um, that's not a theocracy. That is just reality. It's like gravity because Jesus really is Lord. And then the other thing is, is neighbor love. What does it mean to love your neighbor when you've got your neighbors who are being imprisoned for political reasons when they should not be? And we've seen this pastorally in our own church, not the imprisonment, but where folks have been passed over for promotions when they have had to resign their positions because to stay on board in their corporation meant they were going to have to start genuflecting to the LGBTQ uh, CRTI uh, agendas, and they just refused to do it, or being required to use the pronouns that somebody says you got to use, denying the reality of what that person actually is. So I don't know how, as a pastor, I could do an honest job in trying to teach my people to think rigorously from the Scripture to the world in which we now live, not the world maybe we wish we had or we were in 50 years ago, but the world today, without addressing these things. And when you do so, you're accused of being political. You know, one last example. Do pastors not want the next Wilberforce to come from their congregation? Amen. Slavery, this great public evil was gotten rid of because of a, a politicians in the arena that were worshiping at local congregations. Do they not want that person inspired about going into public service to be able to do great things to change public law that has a, a historic effect? And yet that's what they have been being told in the last 15 years by this, this, I think, kind of caricatured focus on the gospel and not necessarily the implications of, of a full-throated uh, tentacles of the gospel and the whole council of scripture. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we're, now we're seeing these new, uh, new opportunities, new individuals that within the public square or pastors in the public square that are providing different models. And it's, I think it's incredibly healthy. Mm -hmm. Amen. Well, we can uh, recommend your website to folks, americarenewing.com. Is there any other way that people can keep up with you and uh, find out more of what you're doing? Yeah, they can follow me. I'm very active on Twitter and the other social media accounts at, at @russvote, and we'd love to have you track with us and be armed, and we've got uh, a grassroots component of what we do. We have a Thursday call that uh, we would love for folks to join, and they, all they need to do is go to the website and and and, and ask. Uh, but we are we are intending to to help produce statesmen at the local level. So our view is that the statesmen are not just the ones who get elected, but it is the people in communities that have the respect and know 
those people in their communities. They know what they're dealing with. They know their aspirations. They know where their weak points are, and they can provide what is needed to mobilize a people uh, to be able to overturn what we're seeing in terms of woke and weaponized bureaucracies within a constitutional framework and to do it in a very, very healthy way. So we want to arm those people and, and, and love the fact that you guys have given us this opportunity. Yes. Well, Russ, thank you so much. And again, we encourage you to go to the website, americarenewing.com. Uh, one of the first videos that pops up there is on this church committee, and it just has example after example of how uh, the FBI and other agencies of the federal government have been weaponized against average citizens of the United States. So Russ, we appreciate so much what you're doing, brother. Thank you for your time today. I would love to have you back on here sometime and uh, continuing to educate us about these issues that are important to us as Christians living in a constitutional republic. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us today on the Sword and Trial. We look forward to having you back with us again next week.